This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 17, Episode 52. This is Writing Excuses, Q&A on the Writing Excuses Cruise 2022. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Dan. I'm Mary Robinette. And you guys are going to ask us questions despite our not smartness. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead. First question. Hey, can you hear me? Yes. I'm Julie. Um, What strategies can you use to make the reader aware of the complex history of your world without info dumping? What strategy? I love this question. And James Sutter gave us a great answer to that uh, a couple of seasons ago, um, just by dropping dropping little lines of dialogue, you know, the screaming hills or the, you know, the, the monks of whatever as little bits of reference without any additional detail. These are just things that exist that the characters know about and, and that gets sprinkled into the dialogue and then off they go with the plot. I would pick a few themes for your book in specific, um, things that you are going to, that your characters are passionate about, right? Uh, everybody kind of, because Tolkien did Tolkien's thing, wants to pick the ones that Tolkien did, which is not a bad idea, but your character might be a calligrapher, and they might be interested in the history of fonts on your world. They can talk about the history of fonts and drop those hints in, not at length, not info dumps, but mentions here and there, which will give the same sense of depth and history to your world and be relevant to your character and their passions, rather than that same character talking about the history of, um, you know, that Ford over there, which might be something that Tolkien would have done. Pick the ones that are pat- your characters are passionate about. I think so much of what provides depth to a story is stuff that is not vital to the plot. If, we, if the only information we ever get is the information we require in order to understand the current story taking place, then the world is only as big as the current story taking place. Whereas if we have other things, other history, other cultural details that have nothing to do with the current story, then that makes the world very large. I pick them based on whether or not my character is interacting with them. So if the character is interacting with the food, then I can describe that food. If they aren't interacting with the food, then I do not describe the national dish of whatever fiction, fantasy world I have. All right, question number two by the person in the excellent T-shirt. One of mine. Uh, yes, um, I'm Todd, and I'm currently wearing the same shirt as Brandon. But um, for my question, I'm wondering, how do you balance a sense of progress with an unreliable narrator? Ugh. Oh. How do you balance? Oh, that. Oh, I don't have to repeat them because. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so your character can still have a goal that they're aiming for. Frequently, that that unreliability is about some aspect of self, and so you don't you you can still be honest to the reader by having the character react in ways that are consistent with whatever that secret is, which allows you to make that forward progress and then kind of drop clues before you do the big reveal about what the unreliability is. Yeah, I would agree. Unreliable narrator should always be a feature, not a bug, right? Like, if you're using it, you should be using it for a reason. 
what is your goal in using the unreliable narrator? What is What are you achieving? Well, that will then tell you how you can uh, intermix that with with progress because you can you can cheat in really fun ways with an unreliable narrator. There can be several, you know, I mean, a character that I wrote who lost several years of time um, in their, their memory or parts of the time in their memory becomes unreliable not because of them hiding from the reader, but they legit don't know. Um, and this then becomes a cool reveal. Uh, so... Highlighting those things, the thing that I would say you most want the reader to pick up on is that you as an author are doing this on purpose. The character is unreliable on purpose, not on accident. They will give you all kinds um, of accommodations if they know it's on purpose. As soon as they suspect it's on accident, you start to lose them. I think that the sense of progress and the uh, and the narrator might be a false concomitance here, that those are not necessarily... Related For me, the sense of process, progress comes from a question being asked and then later being answered. Every time I get an answer to a question I had, to a question posed by the story, I feel like we've made progress. And that, that for me, is completely disconnected from uh, who the narrator may or may not be lying about. I, I just realized part of why I think they may have asked this question, um, that, uh, that if you're writing something like a heist— where the yeah. narrator has a secret goal. Right, right. And a lot of heists, they do. That's a, that's a very good point to bring out. Um, and a lot of times your character will have a secret goal. And again, I still think it comes back to make sure the reader knows that it was done on purpose so they can start to suspect and put things together. I always feel like if you're heisting the reader, the clue should have been there um, all along. Now, there are really brilliant ones where you're not supposed to notice anything is wrong until the last minute before it happens. But in that case, you need to have created a narrative that has payoffs all along. Otherwise, it's suspicious. Next question. How can I make two magic systems work in the same setting when one is very underpowered compared to the other and the protagonist uses the weaker magic? Ooh, that's the better way to do it, usually. <laughs> Why? Um, because conflict. Um, stories are about conflict and what you can and can't do. Um, I'm glad you're asking this question, but the answer is actually pretty simple in that you don't have to really worry about power level in books, particularly if your character is the weaker party. Um, the answer is how do you do this is you make it very clear that they're the weaker party, they're the underdog, and you show them using their skills better than those who are overpowered, right? The whole idea of I am not as strong, so therefore I must be very tactical in how I apply the strength I do have, uh, builds enormous amounts of sympathy and uh, in rooting interest for a character. Um, if you have the character that's super strong, it's actually much harder because building that rooting interest when they are from a position of, uh, of power means that the conflict has to be approached differently. Uh, so I would say, present these kind of magic systems in an interesting way um, that, that reinforces what you're doing, right? If the powerful magic system is in the control of the elite and the weak magic system, I mean, this is the most obvious one, but it's a, it's a good example, is in, in the hands of the, uh, the underdogs, both socially and uh, narratively, then uh, you will, uh, it'll be, it'll flow from there. 
Yeah, the the plucky hero is a a common trope, but one of the things that you often see in superhero movies is that the supervillain is ridiculously overpowered compared to the superhero, and uh, and those are essentially two different magic systems. Yeah, well, and also when you start to think about what counts as a magic system in the kind of grand metaphor of of just character power, look at something like the Star Wars series. Uh, the original trilogy has one Jedi. But that doesn't make the other characters not interesting, right? Uh, Han Solo's magic system is that he can attack people from range and he can fly through space. Uh, and he does that with other things. It's not as powerful as being a Jedi, but it's not uninteresting. And it still is vital to the story and to the society that they live in. All right, next question. Hi, I'm Leisha Bicker. Have you ever based a character on yourself or someone that you know? And if so, did you find that more or less difficult to write? Okay, let's split that into two questions. First, have you based a character on yourself? Yes. Yep. Um, I would say every character I write has a piece of me. Um, uh, Some aspect to my personality comes out. It's inevitable. Yeah. Yeah, that's same here. I've given up on trying to say, oh, this character is nothing like me because I am able to write what they say, so... At some level, they are at least a little bit like me. But I feel like that's a very different question from have you actively based one on yourself versus do elements of yourself bleed through? I don't think I've ever written a character who I consider to be me. I would agree that I have not done that either. There's no, uh, I mean, I don't know if you're talking about self-inserts, but like the Dirk Pitt books, uh, Clive Custer always shows up in them. As a character. I've never done that. No, I haven't done that either. But I have given my character, like Elma, I've talked very openly about in Calculating Stars, that while I don't have an experience personally with anxiety, my experience with depression is her experience with anxiety, that I I mapped that. And and also there's several other things that I'm just like, and that's, you know, uh, the other thing I talk about is her experience with with Parker is based exactly on someone that I, I used to work with. So I, I have done that. Yeah. Let's uh, take the second half of this one. Basing a character on someone you know. Uh, have you done this? Uh, pitfalls? How did you approach it? Uh, these sorts of things. Uh, again, um, <laughs> so Parker is based on somebody that I know. I strip out the identifying details. Um, and uh, and what you're left with is the patterns of mannerisms. Um, in Glamorous Histories, uh, I have often talked about the fact that Mr. Vincent is heavily based on my husband, who I frequently describe as the love child of Mr. Darcy and Eeyore. Uh, M- Mr. Vincent and, and Rob do not have the same backstory in any way, shape, or form, but they have the same mannerisms. Um, they have the sa- many of the same interests and attitudes. It's kind of uncanny. It really, yeah. 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 It, there was this one time where, uh, as a favor to a friend, I wrote a character into a story and then had him kill his own dang self really stupidly. And that was a lot of fun for me and for my friend. Um, I don't generally base on, well, I do and I don't. I base on a conflict often. Mm. If I have a friend who has a struggle or a conflict, I will put that in. Uh, The only characters that are based on friends more overtly than that are Tuckerizations, where they get to, you know, make an appearance in the books. Yeah, I often auction off for service auctions and charities and things the the ability to to be brutally murdered in a Dan Wells book. And that's not so much copying the mannerisms as just, hey, look, 
you could show all your friends that mm-hmm. a your monster name, killed you. Yeah, your name is in this book. And, and frequently with Tuckerizations, they are not anything like the person. They just have a yeah. name yeah. in common. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, one of the pitfalls is that if you have not cleared it with them ahead of time, mm-hmm. that um, it can be like my husband knows that I put his mannerisms into books. Um, I have a friend who was a Tuckerization, and then I was like, oh, I'm very sorry, but your Tuckerization is actually going to be a villain in the next book. Is that okay? Yeah, the Tuckerizations I do of friends stay in the background almost exclusively. Mm -hmm. Um, And if it's an unflattering Tuckerization of someone I know, I always change the name and the description and... Uh, it's then just kind of the concept becomes an inspiration. Yeah, this is what happens when you write something that you think is a standalone and they ask you for a sequel. Yeah. And then they <laughs> ask for more. I uh, had a character, there was a teacher, uh, a school teacher in the John Cleaver books that was named after a friend of mine who is a school teacher. And uh, before that went to print, I realized, oh, wait, in the next book, I'm going to turn this guy into a uh, pedophile. So I'm going to change that name really quick and make sure that that does not come back to bite him in any way. So let's stop for our book of the week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Our book of the week is my book. Yay. Yay. Uh, <laughs> so, um, oh, 15 years ago plus, I started writing a little series called Alcatraz versus Evil Librarians as a way to take a break between the Mistborn books. It's as different from Mistborn as I could possibly get uh, inside my brain about uh, kids who have weird magical talents that sound like uh, drawbacks until they use them, like being late for things or being bad at dancing or things like that. Um, Now, long-awaited last book, uh, last secret book of the series. I actually pitched this series to my editor. I said, I want to do five books and then end on a horrible, horrible cliffhanger because they're kind of comedic, and that's what the character's been warning them. And then pretend there's going to be no sixth book, because the main character refuses to write the book. Uh, And then I want to have a sixth book, which is finally coming out, written by another character in the series to give the actual ending, because the main character was a dweeb and would not write the ending of his series, uh, where he actually kind of proves to be a little bit more heroic than he's been telling people all along. Uh, And so we have Bastille versus Evil Librarians. Uh, written with my good friend, uh, Jancy Patterson, who's been on the podcast a number of times, uh, who helped me get the the voice right because I was struggling with it, which is part of what took so long, is finally out and you can get it and the series is now finished. Yay. Hooray. All right. So let's go to the next question. Awesome. So on book adaptations, um, Dan, as someone who has had a book adapted, um, can you talk a little bit about what the process looks like and things to keep in mind when working on adaptations? Yeah, so um, my my general theory of adaptations is that I am far more interested in something that is new and innovative rather than um, endlessly faithful. Uh, and and that, that is an assertion that gets sorely tested when it is your own <laughs> little baby being adapted. Um, the 
I did not have creative control over the serial killer movie, but I did get the chance to read all the drafts of the script and, and be involved with casting and things like that. Um, the initial drafts of the script and, and even the final shooting script uh, included some changes that I disagreed with pretty wildly. Uh, and fortunately, I had, over the process, become good friends with the director to the point that he was able to just say, hey, trust me, this is an art form that I am familiar with and you are not. Give me the benefit of the doubt here. And I did, and ultimately realized, oh, the changes he were making would not have worked in the book. Uh, They would not have been effective in novel form. But the changes I was suggesting he make to his script would not have worked in script form. They would not have worked on the screen. And so I was right and he was right. And he was smart enough to know that that's why I was arguing with him is because it was simply an art form that I didn't know as well. Uh, The final product, uh, he made the right calls on those adaptive changes. And I made the right call in that I stopped making a stink about it. All right, next question. Hi, do you have any recommendations for conventions or other writing events an aspiring author should attend for networking purposes? Oh, specifically for networking purposes. There's two major ones that I would recommend. Uh, Surrey International Writers Conference in Surrey, BC, which is my favorite writers conference beside the, including the ones that I run, actually. Uh, the, the one that we're currently on, Writing Excuses, we constantly tell our students that the best thing they get out of this is the interactions. But you know that because you're here. Um, <laughs> and then uh, the Nebula Conference um, is designed specifically to be a, um, a thing for developing and professional authors. I so, met my agent at the Nebula Conference 20 years ago, and he's still my agent. Yeah. Um, so those are, those are the big things for me, but I would also look at your local conventions, uh, because you don't have to travel places and also you don't have to go to conventions to network. You can network online and also you don't have to network to be successful. There are plenty of authors who are successful, who are complete recluses. There are a number of things that it helps with, but you can also have a career without doing that if it is something that you're not comfortable with. Indeed, I'd say it's, um the least important it's ever been for breaking into the business. Not to say it can't still be very useful, um, but as uh, indie publishing has happening, ha- happened, as publishing has started to spread out and move out of New York a little bit more and things like that, the, the need to network has decreased a little. Uh, let me ask a question. Uh, one One con we always used to recommend as a really fantastic networking con was World Fantasy. It is my perception that that is no longer as helpful of a networking con as it used to be. Is that, would you agree with that or am I wrong? Uh, You are correct. Um, Yeah, you're correct. That was David Hartwell's home convention and and he always asked uh, his fellow editors and, and his author stable to attend the convention. And uh, with his passing, while networking still happens, there is not quite the um, the same presence yeah. presence there since since that. And they also had um, some some other issues uh, that often happen when you move a convention from place to place. 
Um, Worldcon is another one of those which, depending on where Worldcon is, and this is also true with World Fantasy, depending on which group of volunteers that are running it, they can be more helpful than others. But you have to be pretty deep into the community already to know which one is going to be a good one. So when they're close to you, absolutely go to them. But I wouldn't always recommend making the trip for it. Yeah. If you are in the Intermountain West, um, the Storymakers Conference tends to be our best conference in the, the Salt Lake area. Oh, Pikes Peak in uh, Colorado mm. is very good as well. Yeah. The, uh, the, the one piece of counsel I'd offer when thinking about networking is that if you are, if you are slightly impatient and what you are looking for is someone a few rungs up to help you really launch the career— um, uh, that's, that's challenging and that's, that's a, that's a hard relationship to build. Um, if you're willing to be patient, if you're willing to network and make friends with people who are at, at your level in, you know, in career launching or in book writing or whatever, and you begin to grow with those people, in many cases, those are the relationships which five years maybe even 10 years down the road, those are the relationships that will redefine your career when somebody comes to you and says, oh, hey, by the way, uh, I just got a show green lit and I need a script doctor and I know you can do it. Um, it's, I love to see people just willing to make friends and those friendships that you make are going to be more genuine and I think they're going to be more helpful to you. All right, go ahead. Uh, do you use any particular methods to calibrate how detailed your scientific or technical terms are for each series, audience, or genre? My cheese sandwich analogy. So if you've got a cheese sandwich and it is in a scene where everyone knows what a cheese sandwich is and the cheese sandwich serves only the function of feeding the character, you don't need to describe it deeply. If your character is a chef and they're doing something exquisite with the cheese sandwich. You need to ex describe it more deeply because the character is going to have a different relationship with it. It's the same with the technical jargon that you throw out. If you've got an alien that is, has never experienced a cheese sandwich before, what often happens to a reader, to, a, to an early career writer, is that they want to say, all right, so a cheese sandwich is made out of cheese and bread. And the, the alien is like, but okay, well, what is bread? And you're like, bread comes from wheat, which is grown in like, none of that is actually useful. What you want to say is a cheese sandwich is something that you hold in your hands and then you eat it and it's tasty. So when you're thinking about the jargon, you're thinking about the, the structural purpose and the, the mechanical research details. You're thinking about the structural purpose that they serve in the story. I often just put in a bracket that says technical detail goes here or jargon goes here, because frequently the only reason it's there is to demonstrate competence porn. All right, this is going to be our last question for this episode, so hit us. Uh, hello, my name is Kwame Simmons. How do you cultivate an audience? Uh, specifically, how do you interact with fans responsibly, especially starting out when they may number less than 10 and are essentially your peers? Mm, that's an excellent question. Uh, so interacting with an audience, um, there's a couple tips that I would be, if they are your peers, um, in particular, but, uh, you always want to be value adding to any group that you're part of, uh, and marketing 
generally value negatives. Mm -hmm. Um, And so keep in mind that it's like your value to a group um, is going to earn you chances to occasionally network. The sorts of things that I don't like saying are social media feeds that are just, or network is the wrong term. Uh, That was from before. uh, To market. Uh, Just marketing. Just a big marketing. And you'll see this sometimes on internet forums or things. People pop in and be like, hey, I just sold my first book. Here it is. It's the first time you've ever seen them. If you're not value adding, don't be doing that. Try to be um, try to be adding something to every every group you're part of and every conversation you're part of. Yeah, think of uh, your community of readers as a group of friends or, or you know n- n- that that you interact with. Uh, not necessarily close friends that you invite to your house all the time, but people that you want to hang out with and that you want to pay attention to you. Uh, if you and your friend group, all you ever say is, hey, I have a lot of shirts available for sale on my website, you don't get invited to parties anymore. Uh, Whereas if you are contributing things, if you are interesting, if people enjoy spending time with you, then suddenly you are a valuable friend that people love to hang out with. This this comes back to what I said earlier about patience. We're all... We're all inherently impatient to some degree. You know, we want to launch ourselves from, uh, you know, zero readers to twenty thousand readers, and and I don't have a I don't have a magic I don't have a magic bullet for that. I don't have a magic trick for that. Uh, the thing that I have found is that it is d- doing doing marketing where I am masking the marketing under that's exhausting. I. I just allow myself to be myself with my audience and be silly. And then every so often, I let them know that I'm doing a thing. Uh, is that effective? I don't know if it's effective. I don't know if I'm actually good at this. Uh, but I know that I'm way more comfortable with that than I am with the other approaches. The the last thing that I would say about this is that it, it's very easy to sound uh, very calculating when you're when you're thinking about this. Um, I've I've heard people talk about it as a, a social bank. You have to put things into the social bank in order to have a withdrawal later, and and that is true. Um, and also, being a good person, which is what we're talking about, being a value add, is not transactional. It's like when you are a good a contributing member of the community, you're not doing it because, well, and then they're going to be nice to me. <laughs> that, that's, that is the wrong way to approach it. The way you approach it is by being genuinely interested in other people, finding the community that you want to be part of. That's, that's the, the piece that you're, you're doing. And, and the people that you want to be part of that you're genuinely interested in, they don't owe you friendship in return. Right. And they don't owe you anything. You're doing that because it is something that you find satisfying and you kind of have to approach it that way. Otherwise, you are going to be angry and bitter because you've entered a transactional relationship that no one else agreed to. Yeah, I, I, I do want to point out uh, that there's a kind of community building thing that I have seen a lot of authors use. This has become pretty common over the last two or three years, at least uh, in some of the circles that I move in called the street team. And I'm sure that there are other authors that have different names for it. And this is something that is kind of overtly transactional in a way that avoids the problems Mary Robinette is talking about. 
uh, saying, you know, assembling a group of people and saying, hey, I will give you, you know, an advance manuscript or I will give you these other things uh, because you're a super fan and I would love to have you help me spread the word about my books. And that's something that I see, maybe it's mostly in YA. I don't know if this is something the rest of you have run across, uh, but it is a system that if you handle it correctly, uh, works well to build a community uh, in that way. Like, you're part of my club now. Here's all the benefits of the club. Uh, and, and then also you're going to help. I was standing at my booth at Worldcon and a super fan had you know bought a book from me and someone else came up to the booth. It was kind of like, what, what's this? And Supervan launched into a fantastic pitch for my stuff. And I very calculatedly, very carefully did zero things to stop them. <laughs> Are you overselling me? I don't care. You clearly love this and you love this in a way that I would love for other people to love this. So go, run, do the thing, and uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to put in a quick plug for my Lady Astronaut Club, mm-hmm. which is um, basically I have built a community. You, you can send away a self-addressed stamped envelope. You can be a member of my Patreon. Um, someone can vouch for you in community, uh, and we call it the kindest corner of the Internet. And it is a place where I get to interact, but also um, it is a... It, it is at times that street team. Like if I come in and I say, hello, I really need help with X. But I, I never approach it at, with the expectation that they will do these things for me. All right. We are out of time. Thank you all for the excellent questions here at the Writing Excuses Cruise. <laughs> Your homework is to write out a few questions, to think about it, uh, think about what are the things you need help most on in your writing career right now. Now, we are unavailable to answer your questions because we are off somewhere else. But I find that formulating these things, sitting and thinking, what do I need, uh, really helps you kind of put a point on what you need to do. What, uh, where you need to learn, where you need to grow, and that's going to help you get those answers. So ask yourself the question, what is holding me back the most in my writing career? Um, and what question would I have for the team if I were able to ask it? And maybe you will eventually be able to do so. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production. Jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storytellers' stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. 
Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.